Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. Today I'm joined by my friend Sarah Gebbing. Sarah is a human trafficking survivor and victim advocate. In this conversation, Sarah describes her experience growing up in San Diego and her five years of hell in the life. She covers the topic of familial trafficking and the sadistic acts of her father and his criminal partner. Sarah discusses how she and her sister were born into the life and that the torture began before the rape. Sarah describes how as she got older, she started to speak out about not just getting survivors out of human trafficking, but also getting them resources needed to heal. Sarah explains how her abuse extended into spiritual abuse, how she builds her relationship with God, and why we should pray that survivors find faith. Sarah details how she escaped by joining her mom's Catholic church, and how despite physical freedom, the power of trauma-slash-DNA bonding left her in grief over her father. Next, we discuss her father's death box, his final act of depravity to traumatize Sarah from beyond the grave. Sarah describes her healing journey and how she once coped by numbing. Sarah explains her re-exploitation in 2019 by a fraudulent nonprofit organization, a wolf in trauma counselor clothing who violated her HIPAA rights and forced the FBI on her. We discuss the sophistication and depth of organized trafficking, including corrupt government agencies and NGOs. Sarah describes her efforts to pass legislation in Colorado that protect HIPAA rights of survivors and the importance of local action. We discuss the need to elect good district attorneys at all who uphold the law rather than those who succumb to compromise and corruption. We also discuss the need for anti-trafficking oversight and that evil happens in the dark. Next, we consider the 2024 presidential election. We consider why Sarah switched support from Donald Trump to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with due credit to President Trump's human trafficking successes. We highlight the importance of ending regulatory capture and of ensuring free and fair elections. We end on healing the divide between Republicans and Democrats and coming together as one people. This outro is titled, How Do We Eradicate Human Trafficking? Outros are available for this and all episodes at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show is available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled the Vibes. If you like the show, please drop a five-star review and subscribe on Substack, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This conversation covered extremely challenging topics. Thank you to Sarah for your bravery in speaking truth. To the current and past victims of human trafficking, we love you, we are with you, and we pray that you find faith. Please enjoy the episode. So good evening, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm very excited tonight to be joined by my friend, Sarah Geving. Sarah, how are you tonight? I'm great. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. Really appreciate you coming on. And, you know, I know this is going to be a, a more challenging discussion, but I think it's it's a topic that it's good that more folks are, are shining light on the reality of human trafficking and helping other survivors to be able to come forward and tell their stories. So really appreciate and I'm honored for you to, to join us here tonight. Thank you. I hope that more people feel safe enough to speak out. Absolutely. I think the public could learn a lot. We all have different stories, but human trafficking is human trafficking. So, Yep. Yeah, most definitely. So Sarah, would love to just start by getting into your story. So maybe if you want to tell us a little bit about where you grew up, you know, what the members of your family were like, and, and we can go from there. Sure. So I grew up in San Diego, 
And my parents got divorced when I was four. My mom had some significant health issues, which is why there were no eyes on me. She had 13 major surgeries in seven years. So when she wasn't in the hospital, she was on heavy painkillers at home and just was kind of drugged out and recovering. And there just weren't very many eyes. I do have a sister. She's older. And so... Yes. And then obviously my dad had visitation rights and he lived in the same town and I saw him often and he was, he and his friend were my traffickers and I lived in San Diego for 32 years and then moved to Colorado. Okay. Thank you. And so when you talk about your dad and his friend being your traffickers, what does that mean? So they had an operation where they would sell girls for money, obviously, for rape and money. And with me, I was kind of born into the life. So the torture started before the rape. So I I have memories of being, you know, three and four years old and significant torture, you know, attempted drownings, um, waterboarding, being intentionally placed on a hot burning stove and uh, to burn me. And there were... We can talk about it in a few minutes if you want to, but there were some significant torture sessions where I was tied up to a coffee table with no clothes on and knives and ice picks were used. And I think I was being groomed to be a torture, to be compliant. Mm -hmm. And it was in kindergarten when they started selling me. And I was first raped by my dad and molested by his uh, co-trafficker or partner. And then who, by the way, his partner was a janitor at a children's church. So lots of access to children, which is not uncommon. And, and, and I, I have memories of hearing other girls. So I know it wasn't just me. I know it just wasn't just my sister. And yeah, so the torture, the grooming to control me started around three or four years old continued for a year or two. And then they started selling us when I was in kindergarten and it went on for about five years. Wow. I remember being able to break three, break through in about fifth grade. And what do you mean when you say break through? So, you know, as I mentioned, my parents were divorced uh-huh. and my dad was a pretty influential person at his church. And so of course I went to church with him because he had custody of me on the weekends mm-hmm. and a lot of the raping and selling of me happened on the weekends and a lot of it happened on church property. Mm-hmm. And even memories like I remember being at my dad's house and being woken up in the middle of the night and they would put us in sleeping bags and tie the top and then put them in, put us in the backseat of a car and drive us to wherever we were going to be sold. And then I remember being taken out of the sleeping bag. Luckily, I don't remember a lot of the rapes, which was a lot. I mean, I don't know, maybe 20 times a week. So I considered a blessing that I would black out, but I do remember being taken there. I remember being taken out of the sleeping bags. I remember being put back in the car. I remember a few of the rapes in the beginning. And one of the first ones, like I said, was my dad who, it wasn't just the physical act of violent rape because of his influence in the church and his sadistic nature, he would also, like, I remember the first time screaming, he was screaming in my ear saying, this is what Jesus wants to do to you. So there was a lot of fear of, wow, even God hates me. Nothing's ever safe. I'm not safe. And so it started, it started with those two, my dad and his friend. And then 
through their associations, they found other buyers and people who were interested, pedophiles who were interested in, you know, the media likes to call it having sex with a minor, but it's really not. Minors can never consent. And there's no such thing as childhood prostitution because children can't consent, but it is definitely child rape. Mm-hmm. And the grooming tactics and the fear and the threats involved are significant. So I never told anybody, not even my mother, mm-hmm. never. And I think that's very common. Most of the survivors I know never told anyone. When you talked about how, you know, you felt the torture aspect of it was to groom you for just accepting it. And I think that, you know, these networks are very proficient in in using trauma-based mind control at the individual level, like in your trafficking case, and also at the broader societal level. And so... You know, I just, I guess my point is that I don't think it's, you know, an uncommon reaction to just kind of shut down because that's like your survival mechanism. So how, how have you been able to go from that experience to being able to not only make peace with it, but also to speak up about your experience? I didn't speak out publicly until about 2019. I wanted to wait till after my mom died. She never knew. I knew she would feel guilty and I just didn't want her, I didn't want to put her through that. It wasn't her fault. She couldn't help the fact that she was sick. She was barely surviving herself and I just didn't want her to live with that guilt. I waited until she passed away to speak about it. And, you know, you touched on the trauma aspect and the, the mind control. And so what people don't understand, I think, is that it's not just selling a human being for rape. A lot of these people traffickers enjoy the torture aspect, enjoy scaring the hell out of a child or, you know, even an older person that's trafficked, a teenager, a young adult. And that can be very difficult because as I mentioned, when they put me on top of the stove and would burn me, I remember the first time it happened, just screaming because of not just the physical pain, but the horror of seeing my dad intentionally place me on a stovetop and laughing when I would scream in pain. And at a very young age, I realized that not very much was in my control, but because of the sadistic enjoyment of seeing me suffer and laughing and seeing the look on their faces when I would, when I would suffer and cry or scream at a very young age, I shut down my emotional reactions. Meaning in my mind, I thought I can't stop these people from torturing me, but if I have no reaction, I don't scream, I don't cry, at least I'll have the internal dignity of not giving them the satisfaction of knowing that they're literally torturing me. Mm-hmm. And so what the challenge of that is, that's a great coping skill while you're in it. Mm-hmm. The difficulty of that is, especially with me when it happens so young, you know, your, your brain is still developing when you're a child. So now you're an adult and you want human connection And people expect you to cry when it's appropriate, laugh when it's appropriate, communicate and be, you know, emotionally intimate when it's appropriate. And I didn't know how to do that because I had learned so much to shut down that I didn't show emotion. Even to this day, I could be sharing something completely horrific that I saw on the news or wherever. And my son, who's 24, will look at me and go, Mom, how can you say that with a smile on your face? I'm like, I know, I'm still working on it. You know, so what people don't understand is um, a lot of these tactics that they use, you know, the torture, the mind control, the isolation, the threats, 
even once you're out of that situation, it is so ingrained in you that it can take decades to overcome. Yeah. And it did. Yeah. When I, you know, I went through a couple of court cases in my twenties and that was really traumatizing. And for any survivors of crime out there that may be listening, I want to make sure that it's clear that we have different laws in place today than we did 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. 30 years ago, it was okay to attack the victim, which is what happened. Today, the court system is a little bit more sensitive, and there are victim advocates out there to sit with a survivor or a victim. Mm-hmm. So I don't want anyone to be afraid because of the things I'm sharing, but I do want people to know that life can be a long-term battle of recovery if you have lived through these kinds of situations. Yep. I've been able to get a lot of help, but what I've learned along the way, because we had things in my 20s that re-traumatized me that had to do with sexual assault and trafficking. We had things that happened in my 40s, and then we had some things that happened in my early 50s Mm -hmm. just a couple of years ago. And I've learned what ethical help looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's been a long journey. Mm -hmm. But ethical help is critical because there's a lot of bad help out there. And all that does is keep you trapped. So what people need to remember is getting a victim out of trafficking isn't the be all and end all. It's the first step. Mm -hmm. Because until she has healed and is mentally free, she's never free. Mm And that could mean drug addiction to numb up the pain. That could be alcohol abuse to numb up the pain. That could be, I'm so used to being mistreated that I marry a man who beats me up every night. And, you know, poor choices, but the girl doesn't know any better because it's being ingrained into her. And by the way, it happens to boys too. Mm -hmm. So these are lifelong consequences of an ongoing crime. And... When I say ongoing crime, I mean most people I know who are trafficked were trafficked over a period of years. Mm -hmm. And that does something to your brain. So uh, absolutely healing is possible, but it's like peeling layers of an onion where you go, okay, which trauma are we going to address this week or this month? And you continue to peel off layers and layers until you're finally free. Totally. And I think that's why your story is so inspirational because for so many people that have been through trafficking and maybe are still in ongoing trafficking situations, it can, I'm sure, feel very helpless and they don't know, you know, where to turn. And so it's being able to say, look, there is, there is a path to healing, right? It, it, it matters so much. Well, and, you know, we can talk about this when we're done with the podcast, but I want to at some point start putting resources out there for survivors. Totally. Because I have read some significant books that really helped me with the whole God element. And I know a lot about the right kinds of counseling that are needed. And for example, I have seen counselors who are not licensed. They cause me great harm. Mm -hmm. So I learned the lesson. Don't ever see an unlicensed counselor again. I didn't know. Someone tells me they're a counselor. I trust that they're a counselor. I didn't know that you should research to find out if they're actually licensed. Why is that important? Because a licensed counselor has not only had the proper education in trauma and recovery, they are also regulated by every state, just like a doctor is or a nurse is or an attorney or even a CPA. They're licensed and regulated. So in Colorado, they're regulated by DORA, which is the Department of Regulatory Affairs. And that's, that's good for both the counselor and the client. Mm-hmm. It's good for the client because there's accountability for the counselor. It's good for the counselor because the counselor is guided with standards of ethical care and it just makes the system cleaner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've learned 
what we need to do to get ethical healing. Mm -hmm. And what we need is for someone to see a licensed counselor who's specialized in a technique called EMDR. Mm -hmm. And EMDR is a trauma healing technique. It actually rewires the brain. So, and we can talk about this more if you have questions, but so for example, in my case, when I do EMDR on specific memories, the memory is healed, meaning the pain associated with the memory goes away. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer living in fear because of that specific memory, mm -hmm. but you still have the memories. Like you can hear me talk about it on this podcast. I'm just not having a panic attack anymore. So I really want people to know that not only is healing possible, but there are ethical healing options. And I believe that it should be twofold. You need great mental health help. And more than likely, you probably need some kind of prayer or God help. Mm -hmm. Because for me, that's been a huge part of my healing story. And in my case, yes, there was spiritual abuse. Mm -hmm. But even if there wasn't, I'm sure there are many survivors out there who've gotten out of that situation and thought, where was God? Right. Clearly, he did not care about me because I was abandoned and tortured and hurt and raped. And, you know, so it'd be very natural to have a God crisis after a crime like this. Yeah. So, and I can give you a couple names of books that have been helpful in my healing journey. There's also a book called The Body Keeps Score. I wondered why have I been sick most of my life? Sick with migraines, sick with stomach aches, sure. even as a child, because I never told the trauma was still there. So, you know, I'd be sold many, many times on the weekend and tortured on the weekend. And then I'd have to go to school at 7.30 in the morning on Monday and every other day that week. So how do you handle that? Well, for me, it was so traumatic and it was all bottled in that I would throw up at school. School was my safe place. Mm -hmm. School that had eyes on me. Mm -hmm. I had teachers who cared. There was a nurse who cared. And I had teachers who, although they didn't know I was being sold and trafficked, they did know I had a difficult home life. So they kind of kept eyes on me. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I mean about how the body keeps the score. Maybe I didn't tell anybody, but my body was rejecting this terror and trauma by throwing up all the time. And then even as an adult, I've noticed the pattern. Whenever I'm highly triggered or highly stressed out or something traumatic happens, once again, it comes out in the form of stomach aches, throwing up, that kind of stuff. Your gut really carries trauma and it will express it. Yeah. And so, you know, that's another reason why I want people to realize, hey, once he or she is out of that trafficking environment, that does not mean they are rescued mm -hmm. because until your physical body is healed and your emotional well-being is in a better place, you don't feel rescued. I know survivors who struggle to this day with suicidal thoughts. That's because there needs to be more healing. And it, they're living with a life sentence, a life sentence. I mean, I, my healing started becoming really, really in-depth and strong a couple years ago. But the first five decades of my life, I struggled and I suffered in silence because I looked normal to the public, but I was secretly living with sleepless nights, panic attacks, flashbacks, all kinds of things, fears, complex PTSD. And so the rest of the world didn't necessarily know that I was suffering, but the trauma was there that I was living with on a daily basis. And I lived with that for five decades. There are people who've been prosecuted who don't spend five decades in jail. So we need to start having the laws catch up with this crime. And even if I had gotten help in my 20s, I don't know that if I had the kind of healing that I've had today. 
Because the resources weren't available 20 years ago. We didn't even know what human trafficking was 20 years ago. So this has been a journey of discovery for our nation and our nation's laws and the world. And the truth is starting to come out, but yeah. we have a long ways to go. Yeah, we definitely have a long ways to go. A lot of topics I want to follow up with you on. One for sure that I want to come back to is with regards to pitfalls to avoid for folks who are looking to get out of trafficking. But before we go there, I'd love to talk to you more about the God aspect that you're talking about and the spiritual abuse, right? Because, you know, to your point, A, a lot of folks are, spiritually abused as you were you know and I've, I've talked in past episodes about the, the the dark reality of satanic ritualistic abuse and how prevalent that is and so but nonetheless would love to just generally get your thoughts on you know how were you able to reconnect with god and and move past that abandonment or whatever you know the emotions you initially felt to god when you were being spiritually abused in that way so i even as a small child, believed in God, I just didn't think he liked me. Mm. So, and same thing with Jesus. I mean, when a child is being violently raped and it's being yelled in their ear, this is what Jesus wants to do to you. It's very hard as an adult to go, oh, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior in my heart. You know, that's very difficult to do because maybe your brain wants a relationship with Jesus, but your heart remembers what those words were. Totally. And your heart remembers... Not just what those words were, but many times during these sessions of being tied up and tortured with knives and ice picks, scripture was being read to me. To this day, I can't read the 23rd Psalm because that was read every single time. I mean, I'm repelled by it. And that's okay. And I want anyone listening who's struggling with God issues to know wherever you are, it's okay. Because here's what I had to do. I had to take a look at myself and say, who is this God? And... Yes, I believe in him, but if I want a relationship, I need to know who this person is or who this God is. So the first thing I did was I started, I started researching the attributes of God. He's faithful. He's loving. And what are the scripture verses that correspond with that? By the way, they're all in the Old Testament. Mm. So and anybody, if anybody wants a copy of the worksheet that I used, I, I can give it to you, Jordan. That'd be great. Yeah. So, and, and that was a pretty lengthy project because it was four pages of what are the attributes of God and what are the characteristics of God? So that was the first step of discovery for me is who is God really? And you show me that he cares about all of us, not just some of us, not just religious people, not just, you know, I want to know that he cares about me. So where's the proof? And the proof is actually out there. It's very well documented. It says, I will hold you in the palm of my hands. God loves the little children. Jesus loves, you know, it's out there. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first thing I had to do. And that took a couple of years. And then I have a friend who knows a lot about trafficking mm -hmm. and she recommended some God books with me and we read them together, mm -hmm. which I highly recommend. It's fine to read them by yourself if mm -hmm. you don't have someone safe to do this with you. But there's something about going through this journey together, even if it's just with one person. Mm -hmm. So the first book we read was how to view God, the father, through the eyes of Jesus. How does Jesus view him? That was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And that was a great book. And it was healing for me because... I believe Jesus is real. And so, and obviously he was a peaceful man and, you know, he was tortured too. So that actually was one study that I did was as hard as it is to watch and learn about the details of dying on a cross and being tortured, it helped my prayer life Yeah, because 
I can't just call a friend and say, I'm having physical sensations on my feet right now and it's freaking me out because it's reminding me of when I was tortured with knives and ice picks and I I can't cope right now. Mm -hmm. And that friend's going to go, oh yeah, I totally get you. Nobody's going to get that. But Jesus does because his feet were nailed to a cross. He was tied up too. And he was tortured with knives too. And so that actually helped me to study study how he died on the cross. It helped me because then when I would pray, I would say, you know what torture's like, please help me. And it turned my prayer life into more of a conversation life Mm. where I have more conversations with God and Jesus Mm -hmm. than just praying. Mm -hmm. And I like that. Yeah. And then I would also pray that God would open doors. Please help me to find a good trauma counselor. Please help me to find, you know, you know, trying to change a lot to provide for more ethical healing options for survivors. Please help me to connect with the right people. Please give me strength. Like on the days where things are really tough for me, give me strength because I can't do it on my own. I just, I don't have the personal strength and I can't do this by myself. So there's a lot. And, you know, I had to really get into what is free will because if God is so loving and we all know he allowed this to happen to me and many millions of other children, how can he be loving and allow all this free will? So I had to decide and, and research, can I trust God and trust this free will? Well, in order to accept free will, you have to trust God. So then I had to explore the trust aspect. Why should I trust him? Has he been there for me? Because no, he hasn't in my mind. Except when you research the characteristics and the attributes of God the Father, I had to realize that life could have been worse for me. I mean, things could always be worse. Mm -hmm. And that's why I tell a lot of people when they say, what can I do for people who are still trapped in trafficking? What can I always say? Pray for the victim's faith, because if he or she has faith, they can Mm -hmm. at least pray to God while they're crying to get comfort. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot we can do with them until they're out. Oh, I forgot to tell you how I got out. We'll come back to it. Anyway, so the God aspect for me, has been substantial. And by the way, I'm still doing God work. I'm reading a a book right now on how big the soul is. Mm. And it's very interesting. It's very personal to me because it talks about how a soul is hurt. And one of the things it talks about is a soul can be hurt when the body of the soul is hurt. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of my background because obviously I was hurt tremendously physically Mm -hmm. and emotionally, and yet our souls are still intact. Mm -hmm. So that to me is proof of God also, Mm. because we aren't just homo sapiens walking around with a heart and a brain. I believe we actually all have souls. Yeah. So how do you heal a soul? Well, I'm reading about that. And so it becomes a beautiful love story with God, but it doesn't come without work Yeah. because you have to actually unbrainwash yourself and then rebrainwash yourself with the goodness, you know, have that conversation with your, the people who told me things about God and how much he hated me were liars. Mm hmm. But it's one thing to know that intellectually, Mm -hmm. and it's another thing for that hurt, stuck child part that's still in you Mm -hmm. to accept that. So it is very much a process. And I would tell anybody who's going through that process, don't judge yourself because God does not judge you. Mm -hmm. God looks down, in my opinion, based on what I've read from the Bible and exploring all these issues so closely and intimately, God made our brains. Mm -hmm. He made our emotions. He 
knows what we're going through. So he's not going to sit back and judge us and say, if you don't say this prayer of acceptance right now, you're going to hell. I don't believe that. I believe we have a loving God. I believe he takes us where we are. I believe he'll walk with us. And, you know, I could talk for hours about it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to that topic, but would love to get into how you did escape trafficking. Yeah. Sorry. I got off track with that a few minutes ago. So, so... I was primarily with my mom, but my dad had a lot of access to me. And because my mom had so many surgeries, she got to know her doctors. And one of them was Catholic. And he was very kind to her. So one day she said, I don't know what religion you are, but whatever you are, I want to be. So what are you? And he said, I'm Catholic. And she said, great, sign me up. So she took the classes and I'm, you know, I'm still being trafficked on the weekends and I'm watching her go to a different church and learn all these classes and whatever you do to become a Catholic. Yeah. And it occurred to me, even though I was a very small child, this is my ticket out if I can somehow convince her that I should be Catholic too. Wow. And so it took me a year of, Mom, I want to be Catholic. I want to go to Mass with you. Please let me be Catholic. And I didn't tell her, I need to be Catholic so I can get away from this bad church. Like, please help me. Get me out. So it took a while to convince her because she was very afraid of my father. She was a victim of domestic violence. And she was terrified of him. So she didn't want to do or say anything that might encroach on his visitation time, which was the weekends. So it was hard for her, but basically I didn't give up and I eventually wore her down. And after about a year, she was like, okay, okay, you can be Catholic. And one of the great things about the Catholic church is they don't just have mass on Sunday. They also have mass on Saturday nights. So I started out going to mass on Sundays with my mom. And then when I realized that they actually have two Saturday night services, I was like, Hey mom, I need to be at mass on Saturday nights too. Cause I really am getting into this Catholic thing. Uh-huh. So I kind of used it as an escape Yeah. and it worked eventually. And I stopped. Oh, and then when my dad found out that I was going to the Catholic church, he hates Catholics. And so he was like, you're dead to me. <laughs> On the one hand, the child part of me that has the DNA that still loved my dad was devastated. The other part of me was relieved because I was like, okay, a lot of this bad stuff is happening. On your weekend time at your church, I can't stand the thought of ever going back. So although the Catholic church didn't officially rescue me, it was an opening for me to get out of my current circumstances. Yeah. And then often when my mom was in the hospital, when she became Catholic, her priest really took her and I under his wing. He, he didn't know the full information. He just knew that we were poor and struggling and he just really took a heart for helping sick people. And the truth is he brought us groceries all the time. He kind of took me under his wing and treated me well. And whenever she had to go to the hospital after that, he would find Catholic homes for my sister and I to stay in like foster homes. And we were always in good homes. So that helped too, because for once there were eyes on me. There was a mom who could see when I was isolating or when I was crying and there was comfort for the first time. I didn't always respond very well to it because it was foreign to me. Sure. And I, I was very uncomfortable being comforted. So I'm just really like hide in the closet or close my bedroom door and not talk to anybody, but they did their best. Yeah. Wow. And so then at what point did you move to Colorado and did your father stay behind in California? He did. Uh-huh. So um, he, so, so I was in 1999, I moved to Colorado with my then husband. So how old would you have been then? 
I was 32. Okay, so you were still grow. So I guess what I was trying to get at, after you were able to escape the trafficking, you still grew up in the same town as your father, but had basically just been able to get away from that network at that point? Yeah, and actually, it went on, you know, because uh-huh. I got out, I became Catholic, and then he didn't want anything to do with me because mm-hmm. he hates Catholics. So I got a little bit of a reprieve in middle school. But, you know, human beings are very complicated, and we've got this built-in DA, DNA where we love our parents no matter what they do to us. Yeah. And so in high school, shockingly, I started really missing my dad. Mm-hmm. I didn't want the stuff associated with him, but the child part of me that really wished I had a dad was depressed. Yeah. And so I would often call him, and he didn't want anything to do with me in high school. He, he, well, yes and no. He didn't really want anything to do to me, with me, but it was because something that had happened prior. Mm. So what happened was for the fifth time, he sued my mom for custody of my sister and I full time. And keep in mind, fifth, fifth time is a lot because going to court on custody battles is a big deal. And my mom went through hell the first four times. So when she got pa- served with papers the fifth time, I think I was like 15 or 16 years old. And I was outraged uh-huh. because of watching her suffer. And that was kind of a coping mechanism for me, by the way. I would become fiercely protective of certain people, not necessarily myself, which mm-hmm. is why I kept getting involved with bad people for me, but I was very protective of others. And so I was protective of my mother. And although I never told her about the selling and trafficking and rape part, when she got served that fifth time, I was like, that's it. I'm done. You let me speak to that judge. I'm going to speak out. I'm going to tell him that dad allowed men to molest us. And I wrote a letter to the judge and we showed up to court and my dad's attorney approached us and said, we would like to settle out of court and we're dropping everything. We're not going to pursue, pursue anything any further. Wow. So clearly he did not want this information coming out. And then when we got home that day, he called me and he said, you are for sure dead to me now. And I never want to. So it was a very, very depressing and difficult time during high school. And then in college, I reached out to him again. And in college, I actually confronted him at his church and it didn't go very well. He ran from me and I chased him. But I still, it was during the, what I call the angry years. And he ended up getting away from me and I never really got to finish confronting him. So we had an off and on relationship until I moved to Colorado. At one point, he reached out to me and wanted a relationship after I had children. I think he wanted probably access to my kids. Uh And so we started emailing each other. And I was pretty good with keeping in touch by email because there are boundaries there. You can't see my kids. It's limited communication. And it just goes to show you how screwed up a person's brain is. Because anybody listening to this would think, why in the world would you ever want to be in touch with someone like that? And it just shows you what trauma bonding is and how yeah. strong the DNA bond is. I don't believe Stockholm that's... syndrome. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that DNA bond is really, really strong. Yeah. And a lot of people, totally. it, it even is a stronger bond, I believe, than trauma bonding because trauma bonding is Stockholm syndrome. But that DNA bond, it, it, you know, you've all seen it. We hear stories of kids who come from horrific situations and they still want to go back to their parents. Mm-hmm. It's just the way we're wired. Mm-hmm. So that can be. That can be a challenge, but I finally found the strength to cut him off, even the emailing. Mm-hmm. And then and then he continued to torment me with the death box and everything that happened when he died. Yeah. So it became really a lifelong journey for me, but 
eventually he died and I was even more free when that happened. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the death box? So the death box. So when he died, it was 2007 and I was told that there was a box of stuff with a note inside that I was going to be given from him. And I really thought I had not been in communication with him for years. You know, I was doing some counseling work. I was doing my, I was raising kids. I was very busy with my life back then. And I had this thought that maybe there was going to be a letter of apology in that box. So I was kind of happy to open it up and see what was inside of it. But when I opened it up, the letter was not an apology. It said, I wanted to hurt you one last time and there would be nothing you could do about it. And everyone will think you're crazy and no one's going to trust you. And when I looked at the contents of the box, it was a bunch of trophy items. So for people who don't know what a trophy item is, it's very common with serial rapists and serial murderers. They'll take something from their victim and take it back to their home with them. It could be a wedding ring, it could be a necklace, it could be their panties. So the trophy items in my death box that I was given were ropes that have been used in tying me up in those torture sessions, my blood-stained panties, a doll that had been used in a torture session that had been stabbed, and the stabbed doll was in my box, audio tapes, all kinds of evidence, basically. But imagine me thinking, maybe there's a letter of apology, and I open it up, and there's this hateful letter that demonstrates premeditation for 36 years. I mean, I was staring at my panties from probably when I was a five-year-old child. So there's a certain evilness associated with processing that your own father wants to intentionally hurt you one last time by traumatizing you. And then there's the other part of looking at these items that have been used in my torture. And it forced me to accept that all of my memories were real. Because one of the things that I did to survive, and I know a lot of other survivors that have done this before too, because I've interacted with them and we all share stories, is to minimize what happened. Mm. So in my mind, I was like, okay, these memories are bad, but maybe they're not quite as bad because I was a small child. I was probably terrorized. Maybe my mind exaggerated and I just kind of minimized the situation to cope. But when I started looking at ropes, knives, stabbed dolls, bloodstained panties from when I was five years old, just all the stuff in that box, the enormity of what I went through hit me. And I, I really struggled to cope during 2010, it was a very, very difficult time because the flashbacks came back, the nightmares came back. It was very, very challenging. Yeah. So how did you end up figuring out how to cope? Well, I went to my doctor and I told him what had happened. And he said, oh, I'll get you some help for sure. Cause I was like, I need help. I need help. I can't sleep. And I've got three little kids. And so he said, okay, I'm going to find the best trauma counselor in the Denver area. I was like, okay, great. So he did. And I went to her. Unfortunately, this was back in 2007, 2008. We still had not come very far when it comes to trauma counseling. Thank you. We're better. Thankfully, we're better today, but we still weren't very, we still weren't as a society in very good shape back in 2007. So I'm seeing this woman. She knows the background. She knows why I'm there. And, you know, I'm a pretty small person. I'm five foot two. I weigh like 105 pounds. And I've always been that way. You know, I'm just petite. So she said, I think the problem that we're dealing with you is that you're anorexic and you have an eating disorder. And I remember just sitting there listening to her thinking, you're the top trauma counselor in the Denver metro area. 
And instead of dealing with my trauma from being raped hundreds of times and tortured, you want to go for the easy out, which means I'm short and thin, so I must be anorexic. So I remember thinking, okay, this is just not going to work. I, 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 we're going to treat something that I'm not, I, is not even a legitimate problem I have. So I quit seeing her. I went to back to my doctor and I said, that, that didn't work. Do you have any other ideas? <laughs> that would fail. And he said, yes. Call the Rocky Mountain Torture Association or group or whatever. They're used to this. They'll help. I was like, great. So I go home. I call the Rocky Mountain Torture, whatever the nonprofit is. Hi, I'm, you know, my doctor told me to call you. And they said, what country were you tortured in? I said, the United States of America. And they said, oh, we only help people from Sudan. So I was like, okay, I'm like going out on a limb here. Is there any help at all? So I went back to my doctor and I said, yeah, that didn't work either. So now what? Because I still can't sleep. I have three kids to raise. I'm barely functioning. And I wasn't suicidal, but I think he was afraid that I might be. And so, and he was out of options. So he just decided to kind of do his best by providing massive amounts of medication. Mm. And I started taking sleeping medication, anti-anxiety medication. And by the way, it didn't work. I kept going back to him going, yeah, I still can't sleep. And he kept upping the dosage. So to get the dosage high enough so that I could actually sleep meant that I was, I had like the feeling of a hangover the next day and I was always groggy. And so the price I paid for getting prescription drug help because no other help was available was that I had to live life always drugged mm -hmm. and kind of numbed up. Mm -hmm. But I stayed like that until 2018. And then I was, I woke up one day and I was like, I cannot take these. Actually a pharmacist pulled me aside. My prescription was no longer available in my area when I went to pick it up and I had to go to another area and that pharmacist wasn't familiar with me mm -hmm. and she saw the dosage on the bottle and she was, and I went to check out and the checkout lady was like, yeah, the pharmacist isn't going to let you buy this until you talk to her. And the pharmacist came over to me and she said, for your size, this is a dosage that could potentially kill you. So I'll sign off on it this one last time, but I'm not filling it for you again. Mm -hmm. And when she said that, it hit me. Mm -hmm. And I started reading the side effects of these drugs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the side effects were suicidal thoughts, could cause stomach problems, could cause anxiety problems. I mean, just really bad side effects, which by the way, I had been living with, but I thought that they were things I was living with because I was living in a constant state of complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. But I thought... Even if these drugs are in a small way affecting me, I'm going off all of them. Mm -hmm. I'm done. And I went off cold turkey, which I don't recommend. You're not supposed to do it that way. You could have a seizure or some other withdrawal side effects, so I don't recommend that. But I did it. It made me very sick, but eventually I got on the other side, and I just have never gone back. Wow. So him putting me on all those drugs helped get me through the time. Prescription drugs can help you cope but they're not a cure. Mm -hmm. So it basically just suppressed and numbed up all the pain. Mm -hmm. And then when I was re-exploded in 2019, a couple of years after that, I made the decision to really go hard on finding significant help. Mm -hmm. And that's where I learned about EMDR and mm -hmm. what that means, how it works, how it rewires your brain, how it can heal. So that took me down a different road completely. Yeah, that's great. And talk to us about that time in 2019 when you were re-exploited. So in 2019, I was actually at a pretty strong place mentally. My kids were getting older. I was off those prescription drugs. 
I was just kind of finding my way in life and feeling like I wanted to start helping other people. And I had, I saw a post on Facebook about this anti-trafficking organization. And I was like, oh, this is the perfect fit for me. I'll help other people. I know how it feels. So I called them and I was speaking to the founder. And once she found out that I was, a, I was like, how can I help? What can I do to volunteer? And when she found out that I'm actually a survivor, she started peppering me with questions about my actual trafficking story. Not questions like you and I are having, but very specific questions of give me their first and last names and detailed questions mm. about the traffickers. Mm. And then she started selling me on the idea that she was an expert and that she knows how to get past flashbacks and insomnia and phantom pain that people might have because of you know physical effects and all kinds of other side effects that I live with. Yeah. And I had really accepted these side effects at that point in my life. Kind of like if you see someone who has been paralyzed and they're in a wheelchair. Yeah, their brain still works. And in some cases, hopefully their arms do too, but they can't walk. But in order to get to a place of peace and happiness, at some point they have to accept that and say, this is how life is. I'm in a wheelchair and I'm never going to walk. So they have to, I mean, by the way, I really admire these people. They have to get to a place where they come to grips with it and they come at peace with it and they still go on to lead happy, great lives, right? Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the mentality that I had. I was like, okay, this is just a disability or a hurtful situation that I'm probably going to live with the rest of my life, but I'm going to choose to move on anyway. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this anti, so anyway, this woman was like, oh no, that's not true at all. I'm the best there is. I've got all this experience. And so I took the bait and I was like, gee, what would life be like to live without these side effects? And she's an expert. This could be the best blessing of my life. So I started seeing her as a counselor and I, I quickly found out that she was not a trauma counselor. She had completely and fraudulently misrepresented herself. And to take it a step further, she had learned intimate parts of my story in these counseling sessions. And she also violated my HIPAA rights by Googling my traffickers. So that she had intimate details of my personal life. Then she Googled, which is a HIPAA violation, by the way. You can't do that. If you go to a counselor for help, they can't Google the abuse of people in your life. And so it's against the law. It's a federal law. You can't do that. So anyway, she did and started sharing the story with others. And it led to one of the people she shared it with was the FBI, even though there was zero crime going on, there was no reason to share it with the FBI, but the FBI has to follow up on any tips that are called in. So I ended up having five interviews with the FBI over nothing. It was horrifically traumatizing. And that's when I really, really went down mentally. I went to a very dark place. The fifth FBI interview was actually in person at the FBI headquarters and it was recorded. And I was interviewed by a forensic interviewer, an FBI agent who was a forensic interviewer. So it was a very detailed interview, a very traumatic interview. And I basically started falling apart mentally. Mm. And I was pretty suicidal. That was the second chapter of my life where I was extremely suicidal. And I had no one to help me because now we're in March of 2020. COVID starts. The whole world shut down. I had no support system, no way of coping with this. And I'm living with the after effects of being re-traumatized. Yeah. So I went on to learn a lot about this woman and her nonprofit. Um, they fraudulently represent themselves to gain clients. They, my HIPAA rights were violated more than six times. And if I really added it up, it'd probably be more than 10. But once I got past the suicidal part and I got help, 
The stronger I got, the more I thought I need to tell people about this woman and her nonprofit because even Channel 9 News had done a positive story on this woman because she's so good at self-marketing. Who doesn't want to support someone who claims to be an expert at helping sex trafficking survivors, right? Everyone's going to jump on board and then think that's the greatest thing ever. This woman is a savior, not knowing she's a fraudulent, horrible human being who hurts people. Mm -hmm. So I decided I was going to start speaking out about it. And when I started speaking out, I did on initially on Instagram. And when I did, other survivors started filling up my inbox with stories like, hey, something similar happened to mm -hmm. me. And I live in Florida, Idaho, mm -hmm. Alaska, Utah, California. So I realized we had a systemic problem with anti-trafficking organizations. And the reason we had a systemic, pro systemic problem is because there are zero qualifications required to get into this field. Most people don't know that. These people are not experts. These people don't even have a bachelor's degree in psychology. So you've got... An average person with no training about mental health or trauma or complex PTSD or dissociation or any of these very difficult mental challenges now claiming to be experts and claiming to help when in fact it is not helpful to have your picture posted on Facebook and I be, and be identified as a client. That is very, it's a betrayal and it's traumatizing yeah. and you know, if a mental health counselor acted that way, they could lose their license. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I realized, hey, this is not just about me. I'm not the only person who's been hurt here. We have a systemic problem. We need to fix this. And when HIPAA laws were created in 1996, human trafficking organizations, anti-human trafficking organizations were not around yet. So that law doesn't cover anti-trafficking organizations. That needs to be fixed because we're dealing with Clients who've been traumatized, clients who live with a lot of complex mental health issues. Mm -hmm. There's no training required, no ethics or oversight in this area whatsoever. There's no door oversight, no government oversight, nothing. You don't have to be licensed. You're in a field of trauma mental health, but you don't have to have any qualifications or oversight whatsoever. Well, that in and of itself is going to logically lend to bad actors. Now factor in, there's no privacy laws. So I'm trying to get a law passed that will require anti-trafficking organizations to be under the same federal HIPAA privacy, like, right, HIPAA privacy rights as a mental health counselor does. Their clients are the same. There's no reason why a mental health counselor should be respectful and follow the law. Yeah. But an anti-trafficking organization can claim to be anything they want and yeah. violate your HIPAA rights left and right. Yep. We can't have it. Mm -hmm. We can't have people, well, what if I kill myself? My kids would not have a mother right now. Like we saw the effects of what re-traumatizing someone can do. I've lived through it and I know what it's like to get to the other side. So we can't have that kind of mistreatment in the system. And by the way, this is happening in all 50 states. Yeah. So I'm going to start in Colorado. As soon as we get it passed in Colorado, I'm going to take it to a federal fight and try to get this law passed. It should, HIPAA laws are federal. Yeah. Every state should be covered. So, but one step at a time. Totally. <laughs> I love it. Well, I want to come back to how that process has played out as you've been working to get the law passed, which is such an amazing initiative. Before, before we get back to that, though, I would love to ask a little bit more about um, just the organized and organized nature and depth of the human trafficking enterprise, because you, you touched on a couple of things there when you were talking about your re-exploitation and 
at the risk of sounding like a conspiracy theorist, it sounds to me like as you talk about how similar your story was to other folks in other states and how it reads to me that at least certain anti-trafficking organizations have not only been deeply compromised themselves, it also sounds like they're working in conjunction with elements of our intelligence agencies, at least the FBI, and intimidating survivors of human trafficking. Do you think that I sound like a nut bin for saying that, or is there any credence to that possibility? I think you sound like you've done your reading. So what a lot of people don't realize, you know, we hear the stories about the ex-Epstein folks. These are all very, very high-level world leaders, politicians, potentially celebrities, the elite. What the average person doesn't realize is that even a low-level trafficker is very sophisticated. These are very sophisticated people. These are people who have learned how to likely launder money. These are people who have learned to fly under the radar. There could be a sex trafficking situation going on next door, and you might not know about it. That's how sophisticated these traffickers are. That's why they use torture. That's why they use threats. That's why they use coercion. They cannot take the risk that you, as a victim, are ever going to speak up. And I'm going to share a story about that just to tell you how significant these threats are. And then I'll touch on, I'll go back to how sophisticated these traffickers are. So I remember as a small child having a knife put to my throat and being told to open my mouth. And when I did, they put the knife inside my mouth, moved it around so I could feel how sharp it was. And then he said, if you ever tell anybody what's going on here, I will cut your tongue out. And I believed it. And that terror stayed with me. So when these are the kinds of tactics being used to silence someone, you're going to get a hundred percent compliance and you're going to get a hundred percent silence. But that speaks to how sophisticated these traffickers are. I mean, you can't just go to a community college and take a class in mind control, yet somehow these people are very, very good at it. These are smart people. And the reason they're smart is because this is a trillion-dollar business globally. There's a lot of money to be made. And when someone is selling drugs, they have to get more drugs in order to sell them and get more money. When you sell a human being, you can sell her or or him. It happens to boys too. You can sell them over and over and over again. So you're in a better position to make money than a drug trafficker because the drug trafficker has to constantly find a source for new drugs. The human trafficker, you can get a lot of mileage and money out of selling one human being, especially when you've worn her or him down to a dehumanized state. Mm And I remember as a child thinking many times, I'm not a person. In fact, a lot of times during torture sessions, that was my way of coping. I would just close my eyes and go, I'm not a person, I'm not a person, I'm not a person. And it somehow like helped me get through. I don't know what I thought I was, a robot or whatever, but it's very difficult. And so back to how sophisticated these traffickers can be, you know, there are extremely sophisticated organizations in Washington, DC. They've got a whole blackmail system there. This is very well documented and people want to look into it. You know, this is why character and a strong character and, and commitment to integrity is so important when we go to elect people, because once they go to Washington, DC, they're going to be asked to go to a bar for some drinks to talk about the latest bill that's on the table. And once they have a few drinks and you're loosened up and maybe a little tipsy, you're going to have some 
really sexy woman walk up to you and ask if you want to go to the hotel room upstairs and have a few more drinks and a good time. What that congressperson doesn't know is that that hotel room is camered up with video and audio footage. And once that guy, after a couple drinks, makes a mistake, he will be blackmailed forever. Blackmail. It's rampant in D.C. It's rampant in other areas, too. But that goes to how many different kinds of enterprises there are in the sex trafficking world. And even on a more simple level, like, you know, trafficking of so-called prostitutes in a big city, you might think, oh, they have a pimp. This is a victimless crime. It is absolutely not victimless. These are not prostitutes by choice. Statistics tell us that 90% of prostitutes are trafficked, which means they don't get the money from selling their body. They're not selling their body if someone's threatening them. They're being threatened, which means trafficked. And they're getting beaten and burned and all kinds of other horrific things. I have survivor friends who went through it in their 20s and teenage years, and they've all told me stories about being severely beaten and burned to keep them compliant. So even in a case where you think this is not a sophisticated operation, these pimps and these traffickers, they have learned very quickly about how great it can be to make money without having to get, quote unquote, new drugs. You just keep that human being in control and you can make as much money off her as you want to. Wow. And the other thing, just real quick, yeah. is when it comes to government agencies and the sophistication in the swamp in D.C., you know, I know you're very well aware of this, but the problems at the border are beyond horrific. You've got children who are drugged, and I've seen the videos. They, they're literally drugged, and they're being brought across the border that way. Why are children at a small age being drugged? Because they can't cry and they can't talk. Mm-hmm. So they're being drugged, brought across. And guess who has ties to this operation? Department of Homeland Security, DHS. This is our government. The Red Cross is also involved. Catholic Charities is involved. I mean, there are a lot of NGOs and government agencies who are involved in the trafficking that's going on at our southern border. And it is unbelievably horrific. And oh, by the way, I was at least an American citizen when it happened to me. I at least spoke the language so I could find a way to trick my mom into becoming Catholic and getting out of this horrible situation. I look at some of these little kids, like these five-year-old little girls that I see going with Men who will outright tell you that's not my child. And I think, what is going to happen to that poor little girl? She's now in a country where she doesn't speak the same language. She's never going to learn because no trafficker is going to care enough about her to teach her English. And oh, by the way, she'll never go on to probably go to school, get a driver's license. They don't want any paperwork attached to her because the more trapped she can be, the more she can be trafficked. She has no options. She will never have, I'm going to run away and get away from this. Yeah, no, you're not. Because how are you going to eat? What's your housing going to be? How are you going to find a job? Can you ever get a driver's license? Yeah, no, you can't get a driver's license because you can't get free because you were brought here illegally and there's no one here helping you. And you don't even know how the system to get help. So it's very, very dangerous. And it's extremely crushing to think that we have three-letter agencies in this country who are facilitating this, including Child Protective Services. It's absolutely horrific and evil that our government could facilitate this kind of crime. It's horrible. And you talked about, you know, your experience was with familial trafficking and, you know, ongoing. You also made a comment about, you know, that there are a lot of other branches of this human trafficking dark enterprise. And I, I would appreciate if you would be open to, you know, touching on what are some of those other 
other branches of this industry that people should be aware of that they may not, you know, be aware is happening. So human trafficking is a broad category. In within that category, there's labor trafficking, there's organ trafficking, there is sex trafficking, and there's different kinds of trafficking. In the sex trafficking world, there there are kidnapping cases and there are cases where kids are being brought across the border. In the United States of America, most of us were trafficked in a way called familial trafficking. What that means is we're familiar with the person who's selling us. We're familiar with the person who's beating us, controlling us, torturing us. We know who they are, whether it's a father, an uncle, a neighbor, a grandfather, a boyfriend. I know of adult survivors whose husbands drug, drugged them and sold their bodies in their own bedrooms, by the way. So their husband is a trafficker. So it means we know who's trafficking us. And it's called familial trafficking. That is extremely hard to detect because the victim has oftentimes been drugged. And even in a case like mine where I wasn't drugged, the threats are so heavy that you're just not going to speak. So it's very hard to detect. And by the way, if you saw pictures of me and Jordan's going to put some up, you would have never looked at me and said, and by the way, I had next door neighbors. None of them probably ever looked at me and said, oh, that girl in the little red dress, she's probably being sold and raped on the weekends. It just doesn't happen. But it happens underneath the radar. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's so, it, because it's so hard to detect, it can go on for years, which is what happened with me. Yeah. Five years. The average person who's a victim of this crime is trafficked for seven years. That's thousands of times of being raped. Thousands. And people need to really stop and picture right now a helpless small child being raped thousands of times. Mm -hmm. And I remember this terrible, terrible video of this poor Venezuelan woman, woman that came across the border. And, you know, there's also a lot of rape that happens at the border, as I'm sure you know. And she had been raped five times and she was crying, of course. And she was saying, how do I survive? I was raped five times and my heart just broke for her. And I, I thought, you know, I kind of want people to see her voice because you can see the terror and the impact of what happened. Now imagine being raped a thousand times or 2000 times. So this is a crime that is not very well portrayed in the media and it's not very well explained. I mean, think about the headlines that you hear about underage girls having sex. There was one ridiculous headline I heard recently, you know, because Bill Clinton's name was in these Epstein files and people were making comments like, oh, well, the underage girl who had sexual intercourse with him. And I'm thinking, okay, first of all, underage girls don't have intercourse with a 45 year old man. It's called statutory rape. And when she's threatened at best, at best mm -hmm. when she's threatened and coerced and beaten, now it's trafficking. Yeah. So if the media, I, I call it rape trafficking, trafficking for a reason. When any use of the word sex minimizes this crime. Sex happens between two adults and it's consensual. Anything less than that, it's not sex. So if people could hear terms like slave, sex slave, sex worker, she's not a sex worker. She's a rape victim. Mm -hmm. But even non-mainstream media sources that I follow on Twitter or X fall into the same trap of using terms that sound not quite as bad. Mm -hmm. The truth is there's no, there's no such thing as an undergirl having sex with a 50-year-old man and it's not trafficking or rape mm -hmm. or both. But we don't hear people saying, you know, four toddlers were freed 
from being rape trafficked. You know, this is it's so horrific. You know, some I'm lucky in this sense. Yes, there were audio tapes of what happened to me. I can't even imagine the horror of being filmed and having it uploaded to Pornhub and having people pay to see your rape. That, that's a trauma that I've never had to live through. I know people who have lived through it. And, you know, you've got sites like Pornhub that won't even verify a person's ID, much less was this sex video uploaded consensually or is this person who's screaming and crying actually a rape victim and there's nothing consensual about it at all. So there's this very nefarious, dark underworld associated with this crime. Yeah. And with technology, it's getting worse and worse. It is. And I think with technology, it's frankly been there from the beginning, you know, and in my research, I've done a lot of, you know, digging into Epstein and his relations to big tech and all of those oligarchs, you know, he was known at JP Morgan as the Google founders wealth manager, for example, right? I mean, that tells you a little something, but you know, he was also just as related to guys like Sean Parker, the founder of Napster, right? And I think a lot of a lot of the foundations of the entire porn industry as the internet was coming out was seeded by these criminals. And, and it was done very, very intentionally. Like you said, these people are smart. They know exactly what they're doing. They understand how child rape is such a powerful form of trauma-based mind control that they've, they've been unleashing it on a scale and a sinisterness that I think just the vast majority of people are not yet aware of, but, but are quickly, you know, awake, waking up to. Yeah. You know, it's really crazy because you can, and I'm not recommending people do this, but you could go on Pornhub and search five-year-old screaming child being raped. And these videos will come up and they are actually rape videos. And there are people who buy the rights to watch these tiny children being raped and screaming and crying. And so the, the bigger picture is how do we become so desensitized yeah. as a society that there are some segments of society that actually are okay with, you know, I hate to be graphic, but getting off to these videos. How is a person not horrified instead of, yeah, I want to see this. And by the way, I enjoy this so much. It's going to give me sexual pleasure to watch this. Yeah. So there's so many implications of controls and regulations to make sure the internet is safe and that someone is not being re-exploited online. But also how do we bring back humanity mm -hmm. and not have people desensitized? Yeah. And you know, the media uses the word sex trafficking so much that it reminds me of when a school shooting happens. I remember when Columbine happened back in 1999, I was so horrified. I was glued to the TV because I was like, Oh my gosh, this is the worst thing ever. Can you imagine your child being in that school? I was horrified and I'm horrified by every school shooter or shooting, but because that's become more commonplace, the American public and probably the world has become desensitized mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. Five minutes after hearing that story, we're no longer thinking about the nine-year-old who died in their third grade classroom. We're on to the next story and, and school shootings in the media is very similar to sex trafficking in the media where you go, Oh, that's terrible. 164 children were rescued. You don't stop and think about, Hundreds of children were terrorized and constantly raped as a way of life. Mm -hmm. Sit with that for a minute. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of implications. There are. There are. I definitely want to come back to the legislation that you're getting passed. One kind of final question about your own story, just to kind of put some more 
context around the scale of, of this whole crime. Do you have any estimate in that five years of A, the number of, of perpetrators that raped you, B, the number of locations it took place in, and C, I'd be curious if, if you remember if any of those locations were underground. That's a great question. I actually did the math one time and, you know, because how many times I was raped a weekend times how many weekends times how many years. And I think I estimated that I had been raped at least a thousand times. The reason I don't know how many locations I went to is because sometimes I was raped at my dad's house in his office where that was used for rape rooms, basically. A lot of times they would put us in sleeping bags. I mean, I remember having a gun to my head in the middle of the night, being woken up and put in a sleeping bag, thrown in the back of a car, being taken to another location. I'm retrieved from the sleeping bag. So the whole time I can't see where I'm being taken. Yeah. And that happened a lot. The majority of the time, I do know that the second location was a church. My dad was heavily involved. And so was his friend, the janitor heavily involved with this church, very influential mm-hmm. and nationally influential, mm-hmm. in fact, and was at one time a leader of this church. So the back room of the church was a location that I remember very well. I don't know how many other locations because of the way I was hidden during sure. ours. And I don't know if because of the way my eyes were hidden. And by the way, when I wasn't in sleeping bags, even a lot of times when they took me out of the sleeping bags, they would blindfold me. Yeah. So... It's very different. And I was blindfolded a lot in torture sessions too, which is, which makes the terror that much more terrorizing because you can't see where that knife's going next and your whole body is tense. You're, you're, you're in a literal state of heightened panic. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've read the stories about how kids are intentionally terrorized to get a certain frame of mind of terror mm-hmm. in their mind because it alters their state of being and their mm-hmm. blood and everything else. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they, these sophisticated operations that are so sadistic, they enjoy this kind of treatment of human beings. It's very clear that that's part of the control. That's part of wearing someone down. That's part of the thrill. It's not just that it's a moneymaker. It's a thrill. So I forget exactly where I was going with that. I'm not sure. Okay. But that's okay. And, you know, as you talk about the sadistic thrill, do you, do you, do you have a sense of how I'm trying to trying to figure out the best way to ask this? Is there a significant contingent of these sadistic criminals that enjoys murdering people? I'm sure there is. That happens in organ trafficking. That happens in in the Far East. There's a problem with, you know, they will this is really dark stuff. They will open up a human being with no anesthesia and literally cut out the organs and sell them. I mean, it's like our human brain can't conceive of someone doing something that evil and it happens. So I don't know how a person becomes so demented that they actually enjoy that. I never had blood drawn from me. I know there's a lot of stories about, about adrenochrome. I know other survivors who have lived through that. So I, I know it's a real thing. It's not a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. I wish it was because it's so incredibly dark. It's hard to imagine that you would intentionally scare a human being so badly that it would change the makeup of their blood. Yeah. I and mean, that's just an evil that I, I don't even know how to describe yeah. that level of evil, but they do it because it happened to me too, just without the blood draw. Yeah. 
you know, it, it was very clear. Like I remember when I told you the story about how that was burned and I learned to shut down and not have any reaction because I thought I can't control that they're hurting me, but I can control that I'm screaming or crying. So I'm going to have no reaction. That was my only way of controlling any element of human dignity. Mm-hmm. But it also made it a little bit tough for me because they kept trying to up their game and make things worse and worse and worse to get a reaction out of me. So it was kind of a good and bad thing. Good that in my small little mind, I was like, okay, well, at least I didn't give them the satisfaction of knowing it was awful or that I cried or, you know, so, but then it also made the torture worse. Mm -hmm. So it's just that these kinds of operations, whether it's a young woman in her twenties who's being trafficked by a pimp, or, excuse me, a teenager who's been somehow sucked into it. Social media is a very, very bad place for teenagers who are lonely to be. Mm-hmm. Very easy to groom someone and very easy for people to falsely misrepresent themselves. All kinds of things. And, yeah. then, and then you factor in the childhood aspect. So there's lots of different age groups involved in this crime. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just, I think people will be shocked to find out how easy it is to sell a human being, how dehumanizing it is, and the lifelong effects, but also that this could actually be happening right in under your nose. Yeah. Literally next door to you. Yeah. Because keep in mind, I was someone's next door neighbor as a child. Yeah. And when you mentioned that, you know, the thousands of different rapes that occurred in that period, do you have any idea of the number of different individuals that was? That's a great question. I do believe that it was different people because I, when I wasn't in sleeping bags, obviously, you know, you can't be raped in a sleeping bag, but like I said, a lot of times I was blindfolded. And so when you're, when you lose one of your senses, Mm -hmm. all the others become heightened. Mm -hmm. So I remember different men's smells, Mm. different men's cologne, different sounds, even if their face wasn't very well shaved, feeling that stubble on my face or their breath, mm-hmm. you know, your believe it or not, your, your sense of smell and hearing are extremely heightened mm-hmm. when you don't have the sense of, of sight. Mm-hmm. So the only way I can tell you that it was a lot of different kinds of people is because I remember the different smells mm-hmm. and I different remember the different kinds of body types, even though thankfully I don't have memories of all the rapes and like I said probably one reason for that is because of being blindfolded but one reason is because I would dissociate like I would have memories of floating at the top of a room like by the ceiling and watching it happen to my body mm-hmm. it's a survival mechanism that our brains can do and I, I actually think it's a good thing because people would go crazy if they had to live through it with no coping mechanism whatsoever. I don't know how you would do it. And that's not trafficking. It's prisoners of war, any kind of torture and horrific situations. But so I just don't know, but in terms of like how many people, but I do know there were lots of different kinds of smells and textures and, you know, you'd be amazed what you can physically feel, even though you may not have a memory, you know, like Mm -hmm. feeling different body types Mm -hmm. Um, hearing different men's voices. Mm-hmm. And so th- that's how I put it together. That makes sense. 
Yeah. And the question about, you know, underground might, might come off as kind of out of the blue, but the reason I bring that up is, as I'm sure you know, there's, you know, a lot of elements to the human trafficking networking that is taking place underground. And I think it's, you know, on a local, smaller, you know, basis where I think a lot of these perpetrators have dug out tunnels themselves, but it also is happening, you know, like we're talking about with the elites at the top echelons of the military industrial complex in very sophisticated deep underground military bases so i just i bring that up because again people need to recognize that this is not some low-level thugs that are snatching up and 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 you know raping kids this is i mean that's obviously part of it but the the tentacles of this disgusting enterprise come back to some very powerful very sophisticated individuals well and keep in mind evil happens in the dark Totally. And th- that the tunnels speak to also how sophisticated these operations are because they know if we want this to go on for years, we got to go underground to do it. We can't have a neighbor hearing a child scream or seeing people being brought into the house. So that the tunnels are real and they, they speak to the sophistication. Yeah. And it, by the way, this is like such sick stuff that it's hard for people to hear, but it's actually happening. Yeah. You know, the tunnels that were discovered in New York, blood-stained mattresses yep. were pulled out. Saw a picture of a high chair in there, too. Oh, that's just so sick. It's hard to imagine. Like, normal people like you and me, our brains just can't go there because yeah. we would never in a million years hurt another human being like that. So it's hard for us to conceive. And by the way, I think this is a good thing that we're not wired this way. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to really conceive evil. But it exists and it is dark. And I agree with you. I think it's been happening for years. We just haven't known about it because of how quiet this crime is. Yeah. But now with the internet and social media and investigative journalists that can learn how to be an investigative journalist on their own and they'll break stories and we'll see some of those stories. And you know some of these stories are true when you see it from multiple sources and you see physical evidence. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. And I think, you know, with that, there are amazing people like you who are working the judicial system as well to make sure that this crime is put to an end, right? Because, you know, I think as important it is for our governmental and military and law enforcement officials to cut off the head of the Hydra and figure out the elites at the top of this pyramid who are are profiteering and committing all kinds of heinous acts to benefit human traffickers at the same time you know if we're going to put an end to this disgusting crime we have to realize that it's happening at a block by block local level as well so i think it's you know it's kind of as above so below right it requires all of us taking action to put an end to human trafficking once and for all so with all that said let's talk about what the process has been like for you to pass your law to protect HIPAA rights well it's a long process and I, I started with the idea of what is the core issue? The core issue are lack of qualifications, lack of privacy rights, and a lot of other things. <laughs> but I decided to start with lack of privacy rights first, because we cannot have a survivor who goes to get help and then is betrayed by a person in a position of trust. More than likely, she'll never try to get help again. So... We need to get it right the first time. And so I did an event at my home a month or two ago, and I shared part of my story. You were there. I really appreciate Mm -hmm. you coming. Absolutely. And I tried to share 
a little bit about my story and then what are the mental health effects of being dehumanized by this crime? And then how can we change the system to better accommodate these mental health problems that victims and survivors need to recover from? And I've been, and part of that evening, as you know, was videotaped. Mm -hmm. And then I turned the cameras off and then we did general discussion and questions and answers, which actually was a very powerful segment for me. I really enjoyed that part. But I have reached out to a number of legislators. I have spoken to them either at events or by email. With some of them, I have shared that video of me at that event at my home. And I said, I'd really love to talk to you about this. So it's been a process. There's someone who came forward. I don't want to name her at this point because she's kind of helping me under the radar. Very smart woman, really has a heart for the issue of sex trafficking and how we can make the world a better place. She's helping me to not only write some of the language, but reach out to people. We'll see in a few weeks if this bill is going to be picked up in Colorado or not. In some ways, we've missed missed the deadlines because it's like, what is this, middle of January already? But I am not a quitter. So if we don't get this through this session, I will bring it back next session and I will bring it back every year till we get it passed. I don't care if it's the thing I have to do for the next 30 years till I die. In my lifetime, this needs to pass. And in advocating for these new laws, for privacy rights, for anti-trafficking organizations to follow HIPAA privacy rights, everyone agrees with me. And so here's, if you all agree, then how do we get here? For example... I live in Douglas County, and our county commissioners did a town hall on the topic of sex trafficking. One of the panelists was, in fact, the woman who misrepresented herself and abused me so badly. I attended anyway, even though it was going to be hard to see her and see her elevated and, and actually flourishing, despite the fact that she harmed so many people. I attended. I wanted to see what she had to say, and I wanted to approach the DA and the sheriff. So afterwards, I did approach the DA for the 18th Judicial District and also the Douglas County Sheriff during weekly. And I said, do you believe that community victim advocates and anti-trafficking organizations should follow HIPAA privacy laws? And both of them said yes. So I asked in a different way, and they both confirmed. So this is not rocket science that I'm trying to advocate for. And yet it's a, a failure in the system, and now we have to pass a whole law. And that's very difficult because you have to get it through the legislature, you have to get it through the state senate, and then you have to get it through the governor's office. Yeah. And there will be opposition. We'll fight it, but there will be opposition. So it's a long process. In going to these different events, I thankfully have discovered a candidate that I'm very excited about. She's running for DA. And, and so who is that again? Her name is Dagny Vandergott. And go support Dagny Vanderyat. Here's what I like about her. Yeah. She has experience as an attorney on both the criminal side and the prosecution side. Now, why is the criminal side important? The criminal side is important because not that you want to get perpetrators off, but this is a system of fairness in the United States of America. We have a system. It's not perfect, and right now it's not good, but we do have a system. And what you learn if you're a good criminal defense attorney is about the Constitution and what someone's constitutional rights are. So she has that level of experience, and then she also has the experience of a prosecutor. She also is an extremely empathetic person and very smart. So when I approached her about the situation, she saw it very clearly. Now, why is it important for a DA to know about privacy rights? 
and support privacy rights for victims. Because if that victim is going through a trial, a court trial, and she is betrayed or he, she's not going to make a good witness because she's traumatized or she'll quit and say, I'm done. I will not help. I'm not going through this again. So it's really, really important to have smart DAs who are highly committed to victims' rights. And Dagny is. And Dagny, I've had many conversations with her, and she is not just someone who talks the talk. Mm -hmm. I can tell from her career that she has walked the walk. Mm -hmm. And you know, as well as I do, and your listeners do too, that we have problems in this country with Soros-funded DAs. Mm -hmm. We have problems in this country with a DA who gets elected and now gets to experience all the perks of being elected. You walk into a room, you're automatically respected. You know, there's a lot of ego things involved involved with being an elected official. And that can sometimes erode integrity over time. We can't have that, Mm -hmm. which is why I believe candidates have to be vetted. And they need to be vetted for not just character, but their level of integrity and Dagny has. And if we can get solid DAs in every county in America that believes in tough and fair justice, that will go a long ways with this crime. A long ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought all that up because, you know, it's again, as we were talking about, you know, the corruption at the highest levels of the elites and the Epstein network and all of that, right? As much as we have to root out the corruption at that level, we also have to recognize that at the local level, the money from these human trafficking and drug trafficking networks gets funneled back through the likes of billionaire psychopaths like George Soros. And they take advantage of the fact that people at the local level in particular don't typically vote or, you know, vote for the incumbent without really looking at the track record or the moral character of those candidates. And that's why it's incumbent on all of us to get involved at the local level, to know who we're voting for, for our DAs, for our sheriffs, for our governors and our secretaries of states and making sure that we route out this problem once and for all. Absolutely. And I just want to, that brings up another point that I just want to say a few words about. So if you're out there and you think, I want to get involved, I have a heart for this. I care about this. I'm going to get involved. You might be wondering based on the things that we've discussed, how do I know which anti-trafficking organization I can trust or not? Yeah. So here's what I'll tell you. If you see on an anti-trafficking organization's Facebook page or Instagram page or some of them, Twitter X. And all they talk about is either themselves and all the awards they've gotten or how many government agencies they partner with. Please do not give money to them. The focus is wrong. If you see them talking about survivors and they put in their bio, we never post pictures of a survivor. If they want to make a point and use a photo, they'll use a stock photo that they got from Google or the internet or whatever. You never support anyone who has betrayed privacy and you really, in my experience, don't want to support anti-trafficking organizations that have ties to the government. Mm -hmm. You just don't. I personally would not give to any anti-trafficking organization until we can get them cleaned up. There are other ways that you can help victims and survivors besides that one. Yeah. Thanks. That's, that's really helpful to know for folks. So what are some good organizations that, you know, you are comfortable supporting or what, what are, I guess, some of the easier ways for people to get involved that want to get involved? If you're in Colorado, Covered Colorado is in Parker, Colorado. They do a lot of work. They've been around for a long time. They put their volunteers through trauma training, trauma informed training. They actually just, I think in the last six or eight months opened a group home because Housing and getting back on your feet is a very important hurdle 
that has to be overcome so that a, a victim or survivor of this crime can support themselves, mm-hmm. doesn't fall back into trafficking out of desperation, and, 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 you know, this is familiar. So it's kind of like domestic violence. People always say, why doesn't she just leave? He's mm-hmm. beating her up all the time. Well, it's a very complex crime. She's used to it. She's familiar with it. So, and the same thing happens in the trafficking world. Mm-hmm. You become familiar with um, not being treated like a human being. Mm-hmm. So some people might have standards that are high. For survivors, our standards are pretty low. Mm-hmm. We have to be taught to raise the standards. And as, sense. as we heal, our standards automatically increase. Yeah. But until they heal... It's really good to have someone walking by your side saying, that's a dangerous person, stay away from them. And Covered Colorado doesn't just help with counseling for their clients. They don't just help with housing for people who are in definite need of getting back on their feet and they need a safe house to go to, but they also teach life skills. I mean, imagine you're a teenager who was trafficked or a young adult who was trafficked and you need to figure out, and it was done for years. You never learned how to make a budget. You never learned how to look for a real job. You never learned how to get a driver's license. I mean, these are important skills for freedom. So I, I like to talk about Cover doing a good job in that area. Mm-hmm. There are other organizations in other states that are good, but until I personally know what they are, I'm not going to put my name behind them. Sure. Because as we saw from my Instagram posts and how my inbox filled up with other survivors saying I was exploited too, we don't know which anti-trafficking organization out there is good or not. Yeah. And I know of one in Florida, or maybe it was Kentucky, that actually re-trafficked their victims that were living in their group home. That's insane. So until we can get oversight and HIPAA violation rights, that was the third thing that I missed earlier, oversight. Mm. We want qualifications, oversight, and HIPAA privacy rights. Wow. And until we can get all three of those things, I don't believe anti-trafficking organizations are safe Yeah. because evil happens in the dark. Mm-hmm. So if there's no oversight, bad actors are going to come into an area and they're going to get away with it. Yeah. We can't have it. Yeah. We can't have that. Mm-mm. So one question I've been really wanting to ask you, you know, we connected on X initially, both as big Robert F. Kennedy Jr. supporters. And, you know, as we've talked, you know, one of the questions I asked you in the past was with regards to Donald Trump, right? Because I think a lot of um, survivors of human trafficking are, are also big supporters of Donald Trump because, you know, in, in my opinion, he's done more than any president, at least in recent history, to to bring awareness and to fight human trafficking. So I would love to hear your personal journey of, you know, being a supporter of Donald Trump to now why you've moved over to, to Robert Kennedy. Sure. So let's acknowledge Donald Trump for what he has done. He passed during his presidency nine executive orders to help in the area of human trafficking and sex trafficking. And I have a friend who's a fellow survivor who was actually on, and he established a human trafficking task force, and my friend was on it. So I know it's legitimate. I know they were up to good things. I know his heart was in the right place on that issue. He And he got it about the border, too. Mm-hmm. He could, So I really want to acknowledge him. And by the way, I voted him in 2016, and I voted for him in 2020. And I was probably about as hardcore of a MAGA as you could ever get. I've been to his rallies. And, you know, just so people know... I have compassion for Trump when it comes to all of his legal troubles. Mm-hmm. I do not agree with it. I totally. think he should be on the ballot. The people should decide. Government should not interfere with an election. So 
I was sympathetic to his woes, so to speak. But the reason I switched from him to another candidate is because when I started digging into some of Trump's appointments, like Christopher Wray, and some of his other associations. Now, I don't believe Donald Trump is involved in anything nefarious. It's very obvious to me based on his actions and what he did in the world of, uh, of trying to combat human trafficking. Mm-hmm. So in 2016, I voted for him because he was non-establishment. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we got to clean up D.C. He's our guy. But And that was a good and bad thing. The bad part of it was he didn't have experience with who was trustworthy and who was not trustworthy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people he aligned with, he didn't know that they were bad until it was too late. Yeah. And I have done a lot of research where I've been able to see the receipts. And by receipts, I mean documentation of how corrupt our public health agencies are, including the EPA that can be bought. And if anybody wants to know how that works, there's a documentary on Netflix called, oh, maybe it's Amazon. Anyway, it's out there mm-hmm. called Dark Waters. Mm-hmm. If you want to understand agency capture, watch that movie. That. Yeah, Dark Waters. And Kennedy talks a lot about agency capture. Mm-hmm. What does it mean? An agency, a government agency is captured by a private company because of mm-hmm. conflicts of interest and money. And it's not just the public health agencies like the CDC, FDA, NIH, and like I mentioned, the EPA. It's also the CIA, the NSA, it appears the Pentagon, the DHS, TSA, I mean, I can't think of one government agency that I've read about and seen the receipts for that isn't corrupt. And so if we want to cut off the head of corruption, I believe Kennedy's our guy. He has spent 40 years fighting corruption as a private attorney. And in those 40 years, 20% of his cases were against our own government agencies. So he has had to learn the science involved in those court cases, which by the way, he was the prosecutor for. So he had to study science and learn it very well so that his expert witnesses could share real science with juries and how a person could be medically impacted by bad things. And he had to learn who the players were in 20% of the cases that he brought against government agencies. In fact, Aaron Syrian, he even sued Anthony Fauci at one point and they won. So It's very impressive that for the last 40 years, Robert Kennedy has had an extensive experience with the three-letter agencies. He knows the players, his campaign manager, his former CIA. Um, Yes, the CIA has a lot of work to do, but I think that the the average agent is a good-hearted human being just like you and me. Yep. Totally. Just the same with the FBI. The FBI totally. agent on the street is probably has a heart of gold. Yeah. But their bosses and their bosses' bosses have corrupted the whole agency. Mm-hmm. And we won't fix any of that if we don't fix the corruption of our government agencies. It, it is it is it's like biting off the head of the snake. Yeah. So I'm really passionate about justice. I'm really passionate about um cleaning up corruption. And although I was with Trump before, he just, so I voted for a businessman in 2016. I'm voting for an attorney in 2024. <laughs> we need someone who understands constitutional law. Mm-hmm. And Kennedy does not have to rely on an advisor. Trump does. Mm-hmm. Trump's advisors have not been good to him in the past. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm necessarily anti-Trump. Sure. He just doesn't have the same level experience when it comes to the government agencies that Kennedy does. Yeah. 
And so I, I just really feel like I need, our country needs someone who understands the system on an intimate level. And they can look at these government agencies and say, you directors of National Institute for Health and FDA can no longer get royalties on vaccines from Pfizer. That's a corruption issue. It's a conflict of interest. And by the way, some of these people in public health agencies, do you know what a forever royalty is? Mm -mm. A forever royalty means you get those for the rest of your life. So let's say you, Jordan, are the head of one of the National Institute for Health agencies. You help get a patent or push a vaccine through for approval. You personally will get paid a royalty of $150,000 a year for the rest of your life. But what makes it forever is that as long as that drug is out there being sold to the public, when you die, your kids will get royalties. And when they that's die, insane. their kids will get royalties. Oh my God. It's literally a forever royalty that's multi-generational. So how does that affect the decisions that our government officials are making for our public health? Mm-hmm. If I want an extra 150 grand for myself, my children, and my grandchildren, it would be very easy to be corrupted. Yeah. It takes a very strong person. So I appreciate that all these problems are things that Kennedy understands. Mm-hmm. And like I said, he sued Fauci and won. And this man is tenacious. Yeah. He's tenacious. He knows good attorneys. He's fought with them. And those are the kind of people that we need to clean up, not only Washington, D.C., but internationally with these forever wars, mm-hmm. what's happening in Ukraine. And by the way, you want to talk about tunnels? Yeah. Human trafficking, Ukraine is one of the leading countries in the world. So I don't just need Kennedy to fix our government agencies. I need to have him fix up the military industrial complex and how we've gotten involved in all these other countries at the expense of human beings. Mm-hmm. So... That's why I changed teams. I'm not anti-Trump. I just don't think that he, unfortunately, has the, he can't trust the people around him. Right. No, I, I think that makes sense. And, you know, I think a lot of Kennedy's supporters are that same way. I think a lot of Vivek's supporters are the same way, right? Where they they appreciate what, what Trump did and the attention he brought to a lot of these very important corruption issues. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's the best candidate to take it to the next level, right? And, and you know, I, I kind of view him as more of like a, a wartime type type leader. And now we're in this point where it's like, all right, how do we move to what's next? How do we get to peace? How do we heal from all this trauma that these forces of corruption have been conducting on our country for decades and decades and decades? Well, and I agree. And I also think that it makes me sad that so many Americans, and by the way, I, I think our government intentionally divided us. No. So many Americans are, If I'm a Republican, I hate Democrats. And if you're a Democrat, you hate Republicans. And this division is killing us because it's blinding us. So a lot of my friends are shocked when they find out that I'm not voting for Trump again. Mm -hmm. And they'll go, Kennedy is just a Democrat. Who wants a Democrat? And I'm thinking, (laughs) okay, first of all, he's not a Democrat. He's running as an independent. Secondly, he never was your average Democrat. Mm -hmm. And third, for all you... Republicans out there, I'm going to ask that you stretch yourselves. And by that, I mean like really stretch big because I had to, and I think it's important for us all to do. And I'm not trying to pick on Republicans here. It's just that I used to be one. So I get it. Mm. Human beings are human beings. And when I have friends that are Democrats, I focus on the issues we have in common. I have some very, very, very far left people who follow me on X, but the one thing we have in common is human rights and sex trafficking. So there's a lot of work that we can do together. 
And I'm not going to diminish someone just because they're registered as a Democrat. And I don't think Democrats should diminish someone just because they're a registered Republican. We have to stop the division in this country. We will not heal as a country and we will not be able to help not only ourselves, but other people. If we don't say, I'm going to take off what I've ever always been told by the media, take that hat off and say, what is it going to take to heal the divide? What is it going to take to get policy through? What is it going to take to fix our government agencies? And, you know, we need to all work together because if Kennedy wins, he's not going to have 400 people that are independents in Congress to support him. We need to be reaching across the aisle. We need to be saying, I don't care if you're registered as a Democrat or Republican, what's the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. I could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I love it, Sarah. I think that's that's such an important point. You know, I, I think that's, you know, why his message resonates so well. You know, my my first Kennedy event was the July 4th parade this past summer. And what one of the things that I loved about it so much was it was pretty much a third, a third, a third Democrats, Republicans and independents. Right. It's people who are like, hey, to your point, these political parties, they don't mean anything. They're just used as a tool to divide us. And the most powerful ones are also the most corrupt ones. We got to start doing things differently. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, Kennedy's being heavily impacted and discriminated against by the DNC. Yeah. The focus in the media is on how poorly Donald Trump is being treated by the Department of Justice. And I agree. It's anti-American and should be criminal. But the DNC changed the rules of the New Hampshire primary and wouldn't let Kennedy get any votes there or any delegates. And they haven't provided, they refused three times to give him secret service protection, despite the fact that he had almost an attempt on his life. I mean, we have some bozo who made it onto his property twice. One of those times they made it into his house. So, you know, he's very much in danger and he has to spend his campaign money for his own security. So you look at what the DNC is doing to him. You look at what the DOJ is doing to Trump. These are very dangerous times. They are very dangerous. Yeah. You know, the, the phrase of free and fair elections I hope that's not just a phrase. Yeah. I hope that can be restored. I agree. Or we have lost this country. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, particularly poignant for us here in Colorado where, you know, our Supreme Court says, oh, Donald Trump's not on the ballot anymore, despite never being even charged with insurrection, let alone convicted. It's absolutely bonkers. Right. What happened to your constitutional rights? What yeah. happened to innocent until proven guilty? This is a dangerous precedent. Yeah. And people are just so, you know, and, you know, I, I get it because I once suffered from Trump derangement syndrome myself, but it's like, you gotta, you gotta get over that and start seeing the forest for the trees. There's something much darker, much deeper going on here. And if we don't wake up, we're going to find ourselves sleepwalking into, to, to, into tyranny. We are. We've experienced tyranny. COVID was all about totalitarian controls. Yeah. And the information's coming out now. Yeah. It's coming out more and more and more. I believe it will continue to come out. Thank God for Elon Musk. Yeah. Thank God he's provided us Twitter. I mean, acts as a platform. Mm-hmm. And I really respect him. Yeah. Me and too. we have to restore free speech, constitutional rights, transparency, or we have lost this country. And accountability, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's terrible what's happening to Trump and and I don't really care if you like him or don't like him. We need to be a country of ethical justice for all. For all. Yeah, which is another reason, you know, once again, Kennedy's the attorney. You know, (laughs) (laughs) he's right there. (laughs) 
Have you seen Kennedy take much of a, a stance on human trafficking? So a little bit. And, mm-hmm. and I have actually spent hundreds of hours listening to Kennedy. Mm-hmm. He's very, very good in podcast format, like what you and I are doing. He has a disability with his voice. His vocal cords are sure. damaged. So he's not good in the soundbite area. But if people can just get past that and actually listen to him, he's brilliant in my mind. And I've learned a lot from him about literally every single topic, not just vaccines. I mean, his positions on Ukraine are fascinating. And he brings the receipts for that, too. He does. So it's quite interesting to actually listen to him. He's actually, I was an international relations and major in college. Uh And I've learned more from him than I ever did in college about a variety of topics. So... Now I got off track. We were talking about what has he said about human trafficking. Oh, thank you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So in doing all of this listening to him of podcasts and speeches that he's made, I've gone all the way back to the year 2005, listening to various speeches from him. He's very firm on children and protecting children mm-hmm. and wanting to make sure children are safe mm-hmm. and healthy. And because of his, the fact that he has overcome addiction issues. I mean, he's been in recovery for 40 years. So he has a deep heart for helping other people. And he really understands humanitarian issues. Mm-hmm. And he really understands that people who have addiction issues are trying to fill a hole in their heart. And it's important that we not forget about them. And it's also important that we not forget about children and children's rights and protections for children and restoring children to a good old fashioned childhood innocence life, you know? And so if it had, so I haven't heard him specifically talk about human trafficking, but I think I remember hearing him at least once talk about sex trafficking and, and just the horrors of, of this particular crime. Yeah. And once again, I need an attorney. I needed a businessman in 2016 and 2020. This time around, I need an attorney, a constitutional attorney. And, you know, people don't understand his commitment to the Constitution. They should watch the Hillsdale Hillsdale College speech where he talked about our constitutional rights. It was one of the first speeches I ever heard him speak. Hmm. And that's what made me curious. I'm like, who the heck is this guy? Yeah. And then I started listening to more and more of his speeches. Like I said, I've gone all the way back since 2005. And he's been consistent over the years. He is a fierce advocate for health, safety, and respecting human rights. Mm-hmm. And I respect that. Yeah. And, you know, he he took Sarah Bridges. I think that's her name. Is it right? Sarah Bridges is the I'm hero. Sure. Well, she's the one who went home and her son had been horrifically damaged by a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And she went to him and she actually camped out on his front porch and said, read all these papers. I'm not leaving till you do. Wow. And she was just very insistent and passionate. And when mm-hmm. he started digging into it, he thought, okay, she's right. Mm-hmm. There's a documented pattern here. And when I've heard him speak about this, and I've heard him speak about this particular story many times, he talks about how it's important to hear someone. He said, at the very least, I this woman needed to be heard. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what kind of man says something like that? Mm-hmm. So this woman went to his home with a stack of documents and said, I'm not leaving until you read this. And his yeah. first, thought, first thought was this woman needs to be heard. Yeah. And then he took it on as a cause. That's how he first got started in the wow. area of public health with children and vaccines and these vaccine safety issues. Moms with kids were basically politely pleading with him saying, you can't focus on the environment and mercury in the, you know, in the water without caring about what kind of, 
poison is being injected into our children. Yeah. You know, kind of like scolding him politely. Mm -hmm. And when he started looking into it, he realized this is an issue and we mm -hmm. cannot ignore it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that just that kind of a heart that he has for others is really, really important. Yeah. So I wouldn't vote for someone just because they had a good heart and they, they were just as golden as golden could be. But when you add that, plus being really smart, plus being a shrewd attorney, plus having experience, 40 years of experience suing government agencies, that is a very specific skill set. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I've listened to a lot of a lot of podcasts and interviews with him as well, and I think that might be by far the best endorsement I've ever heard for him. So thank you. Thank you for sharing <laughs> those beautiful words. <laughs> I, I wish more people would listen to him because, you know, even my son, I pulled up this clip and my son was like, yeah, his voice is too scratchy. I can't hear him. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. What if he was blind and he was the most brilliant person ever? Are you not going to listen to him because his eyes don't work? Mm -hmm. You know, we have to become bigger than that in society, especially we're at a tipping point in this country. We are. And we don't have much longer to hang on. Yeah. So we need to put aside, and I don't even notice his voice anymore. Do mm -hmm. you? No. I'm so used to mm -hmm. it. If I heard him with a regular voice, I go, "What happened to Kennedy?" <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I would encourage people to go, "Okay, let's just get off the. We have to turn this country red. Why don't we just say we have to turn this country back to a country of justice and fairness yeah. and opportunity for all and the constitutional rights that we should all be afforded?" I'd like to hear more of that kind of talk. I would too. Instead of the hatred and the division. Yeah. I totally agree. So. Well, well, Sarah, this has been such an amazing conversation. I, I really appreciate you coming over tonight. Were there any topics that we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure to touch on? No, just I would encourage people to get involved in the political process. If you want to help in the area of sex trafficking specifically, I'm going to ask for two things. One, pray for victims who are currently trapped and pray specifically for their faith. Because if they have faith in God, they can pray for God's comfort. Two, please join me in demanding HIPAA privacy rights and laws for anti-trafficking organizations so that when a survivor goes to get help, she will be afforded the opportunity for safe and effective and ethical healing so she's not re-traumatized. And the third thing that you can do is to get involved on a local level supporting DAs who care about victims' rights and constitutional rights. I love it. Sarah, thank you again. This was such an amazing conversation. Thank you. I appreciate your spirit. I appreciate that you know so much about this topic. It's really fun to have this conversation with somebody that really understands what kind of questions to ask and how, how deep this problem goes in society totally. and in the world. Yeah. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate your heart so much. I'm so grateful that we met. Me too. And just for all you listening, Jordan and I met on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I think it was oh, Twitter at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We met there and then yeah. I went to an event at your home and we uh -huh. got in touch and then you came to an event at my home. Uh -huh. and, you know, so it's just so wonderful to focus on human connections and the human spirit and synchronicity and yeah. how we can help each other and comfort each other and inspire each other so that we don't have to go through life alone. And just as a final thought, I do want to give you some ideas. I'll, I'll message you when I get home. That'd so be that great. If people are wanting help and they want resources, I can give you some ideas for them. That'd be fantastic. And I'll make sure to post all those in the show notes so people can just, you know, find them real easily. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jordan. You're just the greatest. You too, Sarah. Thank <laughs> you. Take care. Take care.
Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Since my conversation with Sarah, I've been considering how to eradicate human trafficking, how we can build a society free of its evil. This is a big, complicated problem, but here are five ideas to consider. First, acknowledge the problem. Human trafficking is the fastest-growing criminal enterprise in the world. Estimates are that 8 million souls, 2 million of them children, are currently enslaved in human trafficking networks. This is a massive global problem. A tree with roots connected to organized crime and old pockets of money. The slave trade in America did not end with the Civil War. It simply went underground. Deal with those implications. Two, listen to the survivors. Stalin said, a single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. My friend Sarah is not a statistic. She is a spark of the divine manifest on earth. And she had these human experiences. Listen to what she has to say and then deal with those implications. Number three, help survivors heal. Pray that they find faith. Protect their HIPAA rights. Ensure proper oversight of anti-trafficking orgs, NGOs, and three-letter agencies. Take local action. Elect good politicians who refuse to be corrupted or compromised. Support the good law enforcement officials and remember that rule of law is a fundamental pillar of democracy. Send their survivors love. Number four, hold the perpetrators accountable. Each human life is of equal value. No man is free to enslave another, regardless of assets on the balance sheet. So to George Soros and the rest of the oligarchy, the men and women destroying this country from the inside out, you are done. Your days of profiteering from market manipulation, manufactured wars, drug smuggling, and human trafficking are done. I don't care how high your status on the Epstein client list. If you rape, tortured, murdered, and or consumed children, you are done. And as we cut off the head of the Hydra, we must hold local perpetrators accountable, too. The tentacles of this criminal enterprise run deep, and the forces of social engineering have deceived us in strange ways. We should take nothing for granted and remain vigilant as we come to terms with the truth and as we bring the perpetrators to justice. Number five, take local action. Participate in your community. The burden of not being a slave is that you bear civic duty, a responsibility to participate in your own self-governance. Research your local politicians and only elect those who refuse to be corrupted or compromised. Even better, run for local office yourself. Participate locally to solve globally. Now, a few final thoughts. First, I don't care how much you hate Donald Trump or how badly you're still suffering from Trump derangement syndrome or TDS. We need to give credit where credit is due. To President Trump, thank you. Thank you for exposing the evil of human trafficking. In breaking through the media blockade, connecting the public to truth. Reawakening the courage good needs to fight evil. Helping us to remember who we are. To the survivors, we are sorry for the times your stories fell on deaf ears. We are ready to listen. To the perpetrators, your days are numbered. Please come forward, end the cycle of violence, and connect with God as to matters of your soul. To the public, ignorance is not bliss. Once you are awake, you cannot go back to sleep. Research human trafficking and do something to end it.
Let the first sound you hear be a beating heart, speeding bright, speeding bold. Mm. When your eyes come to me, I'm humbled constantly. A supernova in sight. Perfect as you are.、Mm. 